Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Highly Functional. This is Brianne Showman, and I am joined today by the endurance physio, Mike James. Mike and I had a great discussion today around how we treat runners when they are injured and how we create more resilient runners in general to decrease their risk of injury, improve the longevity of them being a recreational or a competitive runner. Whether you are a clinician, a coach, or an athlete, I think you will find the information that Mike presents very valuable. So let's tune in. Mike, thank you for joining me today. How are you? I am good. Thank you very much for inviting me on. You are quite welcome. I'm actually, I'm really excited to get you on. Um, I love working or love talking with therapists who work with the endurance athletes um, because there's so many, I don't know, I just talk to a lot of runners in general, endurance athletes in general that just to get really poor treatment with other therapists who don't understand that runner. And so I'm excited to get you on here and we can kind of dive into what the runner actually needs from a therapy standpoint, from a injury prevention standpoint, and just being a stronger runner in general. Yeah, definitely. And I, I completely agree with that, that I don't think, I don't think therapists often set out to give bad treatment to people, but they just, understanding the needs of that sport and it's any sport we talk about obviously running and endurance but it's any sport um, and I often tell a lot of people because because I'm fortunate in some ways that a lot of people end up with me after they've seen other people so certainly when I'm trying to get them to buy into things and change perhaps the way they do things perhaps they're just at a state of change that's easier for me to get buy in than others have been in the past but I, I do tell a lot of therapists that I work with that I'm, I'm nothing special. I just perhaps um, think things slightly different to others and therefore treating endurance athletes, particularly runners, can be quite simple, but we tend to overcomplicate it. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. Let's get into your background a little bit first. Um, let's go into just kind of what you were as a, an athlete yourself um, through the years and then how you became the endurance physio that you are now. Yeah, of course, yeah. So um, way back when, when I was a youngster, I grew up uh, desperate to be a soccer player. It was something that I hoped to, to do as a profession. Um, I was okay, but sort of popped out and found my level, when I say relatively young, sort of early 20s, I knew pretty much where I was going to go with that. But one of the things looking back in, in time that perhaps gave me the relative success I got was my fitness. And that was pretty much because from about 15 or 16, I was doing lots of road running. Um, I, did a, I did my first marathon at 18, which was, was back in the days in, in the 90s when it was a lot easier just to sign up to race and do it. People didn't really worry about ages and stuff like that. And, and I'd, done, I'd done a few marathons before I hit 20. Um, and then in my early 20s, I joined the military and my job in the military was a physical training instructor. So having that background in endurance and running just lended itself really well to that. So the next 10 to 15 years basically saw me bouncing between some sort of soccer career, which I never really put my heart back into after, after giving up slightly, plus running. And then probably in my late 20s, I stumbled into triathlon. That was pretty much where I landed, and that was it for me. Uh, the next 10, 15 years saw me doing, I think right now I'm, I'm over 150 marathons. I've done about 20 Ironman, double Ironman. 
lots of open water swimming, lots of long bike rides, um, and just basically bounced between events, either as myself doing them competitively or um, helping others get to them. Uh, last 10 years, they've seen me take my foot off the gas quite a lot with fatherhood and, and starting the business and things like that. Um, so we've been ticking along. But personally, um, I've just entered the Marathon de Sable for next year. So that's going to be me trying to get back on the endurance horse in, in some sort of big challenge. But I just enjoy working with others now using my clinical background, but also my personal background of, of the empathy and understanding of what's involved in some of those sports. And it seems to blend well to, to let me help uh, other athletes and therapists helping athletes as well. Awesome. Getting into what you do as a therapist a little bit, I, I feel like I'm a lot like you. I end up getting these runners, these athletes, after they've been other places, haven't had success. And I, I'm kind of the same way. I'm like, I'm nothing special. I just know how that specific sport is supposed to work and function and how these people need to function as, as an athlete. Um, so I want to get into that a little bit as far as it is nothing special as far as what we do with these runners, but how do you feel like, what do you feel you do different compared to other therapists? So what specifically do these um, runners and endurance athletes need? Yeah, I think, I think the first thing I do, which, is, which hopefully is reassuring to a lot because it's not a hard skill or it's not a skill that people can, can sort of need to go on a course to learn. The first thing I do often is just take a step back and look at the bigger picture, trying to understand the training history of an athlete. You know, if someone, if someone has turned up um, in front of me with injuries and niggles, there's got to be a reason why that's going on. And to zoom straight in that the, the joint or the muscle or the body area that's got the problem and start chasing the symptoms often isn't, isn't the long-term solution. And, and as I say, luckily people have sort of done that by the time they come to me. So I am able to just say, right, let's, let's have a look at your, your background, your training history, your, all the bigger things. I think a lot of people go in at that top of the, little, of the pyramid, so to speak. And if you go down to the bottom and you assess their training, their training history, and more importantly, how they've got to that load. We're all, we all talk much more um, aware these days of things like load capacity and load tolerance. And that's really crucial to work out why these guys have, have got some problems. So, so that's my first thing with most of these guys, and certainly some simple modifications to that makes a massive difference. Um, I am... Um, very biased along the strength conditioning road as well. It's my personal background. It's it's my professional background, but also um, I just I just one of those ones where even when you see some evidence that sort of conflicts that maybe it's not the panacea yet. Maybe we've sort of oversold it a little bit. I sit there sometimes thinking, but why wouldn't you? It just it just I don't see why an athlete just wouldn't do it. Um, which then brings me on to perhaps. The second big thing that I might do different to some therapists, which is just trying to break down some of those myths, trying to educate some of those athletes and the runners of, of some of the things that um, tradition and history and um, well-meaning people have told them that they should be doing, things like the lots and lots of stretching and, and things like that, and, and certain shoe types and things like that. And pulling them back and chatting about the bigger picture. And, and yeah, sometimes doing physical treatments gives you um, 
an opportunity to chat about those more as well. So, so there's a place for that. But it's more the overview of their training program and having an input to that, but then trying to facilitate some change in thinking and pull in some strength stuff as well. Awesome. You said something that triggered a conversation I want to get into a little bit, and that is treating the symptoms versus looking at the big picture. And I think that's where it, I think that's where a lot of therapists struggle, but a lot of it I think is because they don't know how to communicate the, you know, the person comes to us, they have knee pain, so that's all they want better. And a lot of therapists don't know how to communicate that, you know what, that's where your pain is, but that's not the actual problem of things. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, um, there's, there's that as a factor, definitely. And, and there's lots of, um, certainly here in the UK, we're getting much better at understanding the role of communication. And a lot of people now are doing things like motivational interviewing courses and, and sort of active listening courses to try and improve those skills. And I think that's important. I think also I see a lot of the time that that communication sometimes just needs you to say no to some people. Um, the world society has become so impatient. People don't want, you know, people want to get better now. We seem to ignore natural healing times and, and physiology sometimes. And when you've got, and runners we know can be quite forceful, alpha sort of determined people. And, and I understand sometimes how when a motivated runner is in front of a therapist who either through, um, lack of experience, age sometimes, or just pressure can fold sometimes to, you know, you want me to make that knee better for you to go out and run and, and, and I'll do that. And I'm patching you up, so to speak, and, and throwing you back out onto the track or the road. You're going to come back in a couple of months because things aren't fixed. Mm -hmm. I get, and I guess again, you know, um, am I bet? Am I a better therapist now in my mid forties? Probably because I'm just in my mid forties and a little bit older and a little bit wiser and smarter and a little bit more streetwise than I was in my thirties but not because of my skill set changing. Perhaps I just feel comfortable being uncomfortable with a patient sometimes. Um, I've certainly in the last couple of years said to many patients, I don't think we're going to work well together. Perhaps you should find someone else. Just because, which, which sometimes gives me a false success rate because um, you can just tell sometimes. And again, I've had, I've had some runners who they're just not ready to listen to the things I've got to say. They understand and sometimes know deep down that, yeah, what I'm saying as far as modifying their running and thinking about some other factors is, is perhaps the right thing, but they're just not at a position to change yet. And very often we've, we've separated, gone our own ways, and they come back six months later or a year later and they just say, yeah, okay, I'm ready to listen now. So it's more than just the therapist and, and stuff like that. But yeah, it is it's sometimes about having uncomfortable conversations with people long silences, long pauses, let them get to that realization that what you're saying might be the right thing. Mm -hmm. But it is tough. And I do sympathize with, with therapists that find those situations and conversations hard. And it's quite easy to know that, you know, certainly the buzz, buzz phrases like often where the pain is, the problem is and things like that. It's easy to know those statements, but to implement actions to deal with that can be can be a lot harder yeah definitely and 
And I, you know, it's not unnatural to not like to have those uncomfortable conversations with anyone, whether it's a person in your life or a patient, but especially when we're dealing with someone who wants to get better, like we have to have those uncomfortable conversations, whether they want to hear it or not. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. You know, certainly I, I say to a lot of people that in the last seven years, the, the thing in my life that's made me a better communicator as a therapist is just becoming a dad. Becoming a dad and having to negotiate with, with my two sons has made me go into work so many times and have more patience with people, less patience with people sometimes, but just just be able to empathize and sympathize in a different way than, than I would have before. And, and certainly I'm getting much better at knowing when the carrot and the stick should be used. And runners, runners are no different. Runners are no different at all. Yeah, definitely. Let's kind of get into, let's go into the strength side of things first. Um, we both know that strength is definitely important in, in runners. A lot of times we get runners who just run, that's all they do. And not that they don't find the strength part important, but it's a matter of, but then I'm not, not going to have time to run all the time. What Kind of what's your process with working with that, integrating the strength, and educating them that they're still going to be a strong distance runner. Yeah, so I think I see um, two avenues where I, I target that, and, and perhaps the easiest one sometimes is the ones who do nothing. They don't do any strength work at all, and part of the problem they don't is exactly what you said, this fear of not being able to run enough, and a simple bit of education on some of that research that shows that your running performance can improve and your running economy improves and your injury risk reduces. And then making them realize that sometimes if you're doing nothing, some simple home-based stuff that doesn't need to be done lots and lots of times, and you don't need to go to the gym, you don't need to be intimidated by big equipment and big fancy techniques, it's just some basic stuff, is a, is a nice icebreaker into those guys. Um, I've certainly on social media found a lot of success in the last year or so of little video montages of just half a dozen little exercises. The whole thing takes about 30 seconds. Send them that. And it's not this 10-page document with exercises that are just boring to look at as well. Um, I found in, in my private practice running small groups works really well. Because when If I'm working with running clubs or triathlon clubs, then go into them and offering them little sessions, little mini group sessions that are just more bang for your buck almost to get through things quicker and almost um, giving them solutions to the problems that you and I both know they're going to come back with. So you're just facilitating that. The other side I see sometimes then is that um, the harder ones sometimes are the ones who are doing something already but the stuff they're doing is is the rubbish that's peddled by things like Runner's World um, or the older people in their running club who, with the best of intentions, are probably pushing out of date or, or slightly wrong information. So it's that habit change. You know, they've got these role models who've told them that A, B, and C is the right answer, and we know that it's actually D and F. Um, so transitioning change with those guys is often the hardest one I see. Um, but I generally as I do with most things try to find that balance of throwing evidence at them in a easily accepted manner 
you know also and the, the time thing is often a good one so when i've got a runner who's saying to me i can't put any i, I need to run more and i can't get any time in to run more then actually to get them to understand that, well, a little bit of strength work will make you better than a lot of running is an easy win sometimes. And time time is, for most, you know, I've been fortunate in the past to work with some professional runners. I've been lucky enough to work with people who've got more time to dedicate. But 99% of my client load is recreational athletes, the people who have jobs and families and some sort of social life around running. So their most valuable asset is time. And actually, if you can tap into the time side of it and sort of, you know, um, get them to understand that it's a little bit of time for a lot of reward. And then also realizing that some of them waste so much time. The number of runners that I work with waste time. And I, I often say, you know, get the big rocks right first. So if your training is right, your recovery is right, your strength work is right, your sleep is right. But actually, if you want to have a stretch or you want to lie in a foam roller, I don't have any issues whatsoever with that. But if you're telling me that you've only got 20 minutes a week to do something outside running, and that 20 minutes is stood on your stairs doing a calf stretch, and your calves are still feeling tight, <laughs> then actually there's 20 minutes that you can be doing something far more effective than, than that. And, and again, it, it, sometimes the penny drops straight away and sometimes it doesn't. The thing I've had massive buy-in in the last year or so is um, Rich Blagrove and his colleagues put out a really good meta-analysis of um, running and, and concurrent running and uh, strength work and they put a really nice sort of recommendation out of twice a week for the off-season, twice a week heavy strength work for 14 to 16 weeks I think it was and then maintaining those gains with once weekly when their run program improves. That's the strategy I sort of employed anyway, but to have that as an evidence base to then say, right, look, you know, when you're not running lots, do lots of strength work. And then when your running improves or increases, let's maintain the strength gains with less. And then, then understanding, because with a mistake most of them make is they come from the off season with not a lot of running and not much strength training. Then they start ramping their run training, but they simultaneously try to ramp their strength training. And we all know that when they do that, there's only one thing that's going to give. They're not going to give up miles. They're not going to give up distance. They're going to give up the strength. Mm -hmm. And, and the, the worst case scenario happens is they're ramping up mileage without building up strength base. So to try and get them to understand it can be concurrent and you can just dovetail them to accommodate each other has had lots of success for me in the last 12 months. But really big success. So it's made implementing it much easier for a lot of people. That's awesome. Let's get into the myths a little bit. Um, obviously, there's a ton of different myths out there. What are the biggest ones that you find with runners that are the biggest ones that we need to overcome as well as the ones that are most difficult to overcome with people? Yeah, I think, I think the, the two biggest ones are probably also the most difficult ones. I touched on one then when it comes to stretching. Um, you know, we we spent 30, 40 years pushing the stretching, whether we thought it was right or wrong at the time, the whole static stretching, mm -hmm. A, as a warm-up, and B, as to reduce or prevent injury. And we categorically know that it's not really going to make any difference at all. Um, some dynamic stuff may help a bit more at the start, but realistically, it's a tough one to, to break down. And, and 
I've worked with a friend of mine runs a running club and he asked me to cover one of their sessions about two years ago. And we, we set out for an easy, easy sort of warm up to the running track where we were going to do a session and, and the, about 20 of them just carte blanche, just hopped after about two miles and just went into a stretching routine. And I was like, what, what are you guys doing? I hadn't sort of suggested we stopped in any shape or form, but they were adamant <laughs> that they needed to do this. And, and um, we had quite a good open conversation that day. So stretching's a tough one. Um, I believe sometimes it's a lot of it to do with this perception of tightness, mm-hmm. which I often feel in reality is weakness and fatigue. Yep. Um, you know, and, and it's fine actually if you are if you're with runners and you're in the clinic or at the track and you can do a simple muscle length test to show these guys that look you're not tight. I, I complete and then that empathy of I completely believe you that you feel tight. I'm not doubting that you feel tight or you believe you're doing the right thing, but we can show that it's not tight and then sim- simultaneously saying, Okay, so your calves aren't tight. Let's so many single leg calf raises you can do. And then they're failing with single digit scores. And you show them what they should be able to do. And you're showing them the forces and the sort of loads that that calf complex should absorb. And then suddenly you just start to see that penny drop of, oh, okay, now I sort of get it. So you can win that battle. I just think it's such a big battle on such a wide scale that it, it's going to be hard. The second biggest myth that I probably spend so much time fighting is shoe types and footwear. You know, we, we I feel I, I'm, I'm an optimist, so I hate saying that we're lose it, we're going to lose the battle, but we're, there's at best probably a couple of thousand of us guys shouting around the world trying to take on billion dollar empires with, with sports products. And, you know, I don't know if we'll be able to win that eventually. But, you know, um, I, I'm sure you're the same. That One of my biggest frustrations every week is I've joined so many forums on things like Facebook to just A, keep, keep part of the time. It's to keep an eye on themes that are flying around the running world so I know what content I should be producing. But sometimes it's to step in and offer some help. And just I cringe at some of the advice and some of the stuff that's going on. Just, you know, what shoes should I do this? And, you know, that dreaded, I'm a pronator, I'm an overpronator comes out. And you can, you know, you tend not to because you just get laughed out of town. But you could list reams and reams of science that says, you know, it doesn't matter, basically. And they just look at you as if, yeah, okay, whatever. So I've taken a sideways step to that and I've tried to fight that battle in the last few couple of years with just the buy a shoe you can afford that is comfortable and rotate a couple of pairs of shoes as you can. Um, I think everyone sometimes, certainly personally myself, um, I know that if I want to run fast, my calves feel it quite a lot. So there's certain shoe types that if I'm doing a hard speed session, I'll tend to not want to wear. But likewise, I know that if I wear those and it does aggravate my calves for a while, just simply switching to a different footwear type for the next couple of runs will normally just, you know, help me out. It's just a case of saying to them that, you know, it doesn't really matter. And certainly now these, um, the old new Nikes that have come out with, with the, the 4% thing with just crazy money, crazy money for a pair of shoes. Yeah, you're just watching people getting sucked into it and just, 
And again, these are the people, and this is why it's the frustration to me, these are the people that um, probably don't have any structured training. They certainly don't have any structured strength or rest or recovery. Probability is that their nutrition, sleep, and, and hydration is pretty poor as well. They won't spend 50 to $100 to go and see an expert to have an assessment, but they'll throw three, $400 at a pair of shoes. Um, I, I encounter this a lot of the time in the triathlon world as well, where people just, they'll have thousands of dollars worth of kit, but they won't invest in themselves. Um, and it's, you know, you, you get to them slowly. And most of the time it's because they've still ended up with some Achilles tendinopathy, despite the, the fancy shoes they've got on. Or often they just can't get to perform at the level they hope to perform at. And um, sometimes it's months, sometimes it's years, but but they come to you. But it's the it's the whole myths about foot type and shoe type and shoe selection, and then stretching, static stretching particularly. They're they're, they're the big two. Those are the same two that I that I tend to see. And I actually just wrote a blog on that stretching one recently. Um, addressed the whole like you feel tight, but it's not because it's actually tight. And getting into that, um, yeah. just because it is such a misnomer, like. Because I'm the same way. I see those people stretching, loosening things up every single time. It's like, is that really working for you? <laughs> mm, yeah. Yeah. And I say it is hard because they do feel tight. Mm-hmm. So, so I get that. I get that with them. And sometimes just um, letting them feel tight and almost agreeing with them is, is the easy way in. Then when you've got that conversation started, then going in with, oh, let me just check this for you. And, and you know, I, my wife often thinks I'm crazy because she's seen me just spectating at events and watching people doing these stretching and just wondering over and let me, you know, let me have a stretch. Let me check that muscle for you because it doesn't look too tight to me. And then, and then little business card. And, you know, if you want to do a bit more, get in touch with me. Um, but, yeah, I've always felt, I think perhaps one of the things I find because those are frustrating. They're frustrating things to fight against. They're hard. They get you down to repeat it. And it's certainly why I first started some social media stuff was because instead of me saying the same thing 10 times in a day in clinic, if I, if I film it once, I can signpost people to my thing. Mm-hmm. Then you just go, well, now I can share it and I can push it. And certainly it's emotionally less, less tiring for me to just keep reposting the same video that I filmed two years ago than, than saying it all the time to people now. <laughs> but, uh, and it's like a little hand grenade sometimes I throw into these forums and then run away. Uh, <laughs> and, then, and then I tend to end up in Facebook jail for about three days and I've been blocked or banned from posting and I have to ride it out before I can say something again. <laughs> but um, yeah. No, I get it. I'm, I'm the same way when it comes to social media. Not that I've let myself get banned, but um, <laughs> I, I definitely am in a lot of the groups. Just kind of see the questions that are being asked because if one or two people are asking it, there's hundreds of people that have that same yeah, thought. Yeah. And so it is a great way to create content and then just to educate people on how not to get injured. Yeah, and you can, you know, there's certainly when I, I create content, I, I can do it sometimes in a... In a less or more aggressive way than that and then I need to and, and then use the appropriate way to certain people and populations um, you know we, we both know of certain therapists online who, who tend to be quite in the, in your face and, and aggressive with, with their content full stop and some who are a lot more passive aggressive 
And I think sometimes there's, just, there's a time and a place for different approaches. And certainly, yeah, in some groups, I, I tend to be very much more sort of, I'll put maybe a screenshot in of something or a little PowerPoint slide type thing, which is more just trying to plant a seed of thought for people to just think, okay, let's think about that. And then there's other times where sometimes you just have to call BS and, and be a bit more blunt. I, I don't like doing that. It's not something I want to do because my personality is someone that wouldn't respond very well to that approach. So I, I don't like to be like that to some people, but there's sometimes I, there was um, in the UK, there's a, um, um, a group that was just set up for parkrun, you know, 5k events. And the, the sort of, uh, statement mission statement of this group was you know free content to try and improve our runners and help them so i i posted a blog that i'd written which was basically how to stay injury free for five kids and it got removed it got deleted within about an hour so i i followed up to the admins with a little message of oh i'm just in i, I don't mind that you've taken it down but i'm just intrigued for future reference why you took it down and the reply was along the lines of, we just didn't think it was appropriate content for our, our audience. And I'm like, but you're a group of runners who run 5K, and this was how to not get injured for 5K. I, I can't say how it was more appropriate. Um, I didn't really get great, great response to that one. But it just felt like it was a closed silo, a little echo chamber that they didn't really want anyone to offer anything above and beyond what the admins wanted to push out. No, I don't know whether that, you know, cynically I could think that was maybe for financial gain somewhere down the line for them or it was just they didn't like other people's opinions. But um, but it can be tough sometimes to find, you know, you, we maybe people don't realize it all the time, but certainly the whole point of me having a social media presence was purely to help people, um, purely to try and spread a message far and wide. And and. I think sometimes because it comes from a business page and I certainly get better reception if I post it from the Mike James Facebook page than if I do the endurance physio page. Because I think, unfortunately, perhaps we've been tainted with the same brush as some are who are just peddling products and other things. So, um, so yeah, it's a tough battle, but um, we'll keep fighting it. <laughs> There's always a battle to fight when it comes to this, isn't there? Yes, there is. There is indeed. How much do you get into running technique itself with your run, with their runners? It depends, really. Um, I'm not. So my in my past, in in my educational past, I did um, in one of my undergrad degrees, I did my dissertation on, on biomechanics. So there was a time early two thousands where I was really down that rabbit hole and and big into it. And then I've taken a real step back, and now I sort of. I, I tend to look at things now, and if I if I feel myself pulling a face and feeling just uncomfortable watching someone's gait and someone's running technique, then I tend to maybe look at it a bit more. Um, I tend to get I, I tend now to be try and be a lot more dismissive of it. I get more people coming to me saying. I've been told it's my running gait and they've been focused on it and they've had coaching on it that has almost been too much. They've just had too much coaching. They've too many cues, too much coaching and they've got, bless them, they've got so much to think about. They've forgotten that just put one foot in front of the other and just run. Um, so sometimes I, the, the times that I really think about it more than anything else is for real performance. Um, if someone is more of a sprinter or a sort of speed guy, 
always just generally, you know, a real racing snake who is putting in some lightning times over whatever distances they're racing. Then maybe then for that performance side of it, I'll look at a bit more cues and I'll look at a little bit more coaching on, on things like that. For the average recreational runner that I work with, my main time that I worry about that is for symptom modification. If someone's coming to me with, with some pain or some problems and a simple change in cadence or step gate or, or gate pattern somehow, which will be different to every person, can simply offload some certain structures and spread those forces somewhere else, then, then for a period of time, yeah, that's, that's fine with me. And again, the only other time is you, you see some people who just run and they just look so inefficient. <laughs> and, and you just look at someone and you go, and you seem to be working far harder than the speed you're producing. Um, I, was, I was sitting in a coffee shop about two days ago, just working on my laptop, and, and there's a big glass front building and you can see someone running from a couple of hundred meters up the road and it must have taken this uh, a few minutes to pass the two three hundred meters down to me and, and onwards and and although it wasn't so much because of her speed I noticed that she just looked very inefficient quite subjectively you couldn't it was very hard to start picking the true errors in her, in her gait but it just felt like yeah you probably need someone to just try and make that a bit more effective for you now, on, on assessment, it might have been mobility deficits. It might have been strength deficits that were the real fix, not so much a, um, an actual true gait change. But yeah, she looked like she could have just done with a couple of cues, a couple of tips to maybe just be a bit more effective. But I don't, I don't blanket everyone I see with, with gait assessments anymore or gait, you know, I, I, I go so far back with, with working with runners that we've done everything with them and... and Sometimes it wasn't the best thing to be doing. Yeah, that makes sense. When looking at people, and I kind of want to approach this just because I hear it all the time and it's where it's, a lot of times it's coming from, but we see foot things, we see knee things, numbness, tingling, pain, whatever. How often are you addressing it as like it's actually coming from the back becomes like more of a postural thing, a weakness thing, especially as they increase their mileage? Not as often as probably a lot of people are. Um, obviously just out of diligence it's something I will always check and assess but a lot of the time you know, I think I think none of, none of us are real scientists but actually when we spend a bit of time looking at the physics of it if someone is put it in a certain amount of mileage and a certain amount of frequency with that mileage and the forces they're transmitting through their body then I'm always surprised if they're not picking up little niggles and aches and pains because of the sheer load they're putting through their body. Um, and often, again, just a quick cursory check of that area that it's nothing that is sinister and nothing that I'm overly concerned about. And then modifying as a quick test their running or their training load often results in just complete resolution of some of these, these problems. And if it doesn't, then I zoom in further and I'll worry a little bit more if it's to do with other things. Um, obviously, you get a lot of runners who come in who uh, they're, they're, they're mental sometimes. They just, you'll quiz them for, for a couple of sessions and there's nothing. And then they'll drop the bombshell three or four sessions in about some rheumatological problem they've had or some sort of previous injury or previous illness that's been a massive neurological problem for them and you're like oh you could have saved me so much time and effort <laughs> and testing. 
you just mentioned to me three days ago, previous, whatever or it is. But um, yeah, it, it's uh, it's an overwatch and a diligent assessment for most of them. But a lot of the time with, with as runners, then it's just the amount of forces and load they're putting through. And, and again, a lot of them, these recreational runners that we chat about, they are people who spend prolonged periods in jobs or, or uh, tasks in certain postures, not necessarily good or bad postures as a lot of them would tend to believe, but just certain postures. And then suddenly will race home, throw their kit on and go straight out the door to get those extra couple of miles in. And that simple bit of mobility work, that simple bit of preparation work can often just be the thing that doesn't bring on these triggers. So again, the whole education thing of it, that actually just saying to someone, you don't need a lot of treatment, you just need to implement some simple strategies in and around your running, even if it's that 10 minutes before you leave work, if, if, if work allows you to, or just maybe doing a little, you know, do one mile less on your run tonight, but you'll run a better quality run by doing these three or four little things before you go out. Um, but they'll all worry about, you know, and again, the forums are a nightmare for this. You know, I, I, I got a little bit of pins and needles in my, in my lower leg. Um, oh, you must have a disc herniation. You better go to the, the doctors mm -hmm. or the, you know, and you're like, guys, come on. You've, you've gone from zero to 100 without <laughs> even thinking about it. And uh, again, sometimes you'll get the common sense of, oh, well, did you do any big hill runs? Have you done a, a longer run than you've been conditioned for for the last week? Because often they can flare things up. And then again, pushing the sort of, I tend to push a little bit of content out now and again to do with things like um, muscular causes of neural irritation and things like that. So that mm -hmm. at least people can start to drip feed. Okay, there's, there's reasons to run in why I may get some of these and they're not necessarily bad or sinister. And then these are some simple things I can do to try and address it. Yeah. And I think something to hit on is something you mentioned in kind of brief, brief passing which is like those other injuries from your past. Um, and it's the things you don't even think about. It's like you could have been walking down the street and turned your ankle a little bit. And then a month later, the other leg starts bothering you because you're compensating. And so just like trying to pull these things out of people, like has, have you injured anything, not just like this area um, and just kind of getting those reminders into people that everything affects everything else eventually. Yeah, of course it does. And again, when we mentioned earlier about just being older and a bit more experienced, sometimes just being happy and comfortable to spend longer talking to an athlete, to, to not jump into, they want me to stick them on the plinth, they want me to start pulling and pushing them and checking things. Or if they do have that sort of urgency about them, then sometimes, you know, put them on the plinth, go through the show, so to speak, but continue to question them when you're doing these things. Mm -hmm. um, I've always been really, if, if I ever get um, athletes who come in, sometimes you get athletes, they come in with their partners or family members of support. And sometimes because they're both injured and they've got like a double session. Again, you know, certainly with men, men won't tell you what they've been up to in the past, but the women will. Oh, actually he fell off a ladder when he was cleaning the windows six months ago or something bizarre. And you go, oh, right. Okay. That, that helps a lot but yeah those and again they will then sometimes running related compensatory stuff so you know um, I've started to do I left some right-sided lower back pain all right you know can't think of any reason 
and then they start telling you that um, there was some construction work going on where they were living and they had to change their running route and the running route was a left-sided loop and they've done that for the last six weeks and okay you start thinking about road cambers and things like that and you start going oh okay fine so yeah it is a case of unpicking it sometimes and and then you know the old song of the, the knee bone connected to the hip bone is often one I throw in as a little simple analogy to say to them look I know I know you're telling me you've got back pain but the reason I'm looking at your shoulder or your ankle is because there's a, a chance that it's coming from somewhere else or that I can make a difference to it by looking at somewhere else so, so that's why I, oh okay I get it now I get why you're doing that um, and sometimes certainly if someone's come to see you they've seen a few therapists before without long-term success then if they have been just focusing on that knee pain and treating that knee and they've over-treated that knee and then the, the patient, the athlete, has got to the point of losing a bit of confidence in those techniques, then just the sheer fact that maybe you're looking at their back or their feet or something gives them a little bit of confidence in you that, oh, right, this guy's doing something different, something that hasn't been done to me before. So perhaps I should roll with it and see where he's taking it. Yeah, definitely. And that's... It's kind of where I always start when it comes to my runners is like, what have they done? You know, because obviously we don't want to do the same thing that the other people have done because it hasn't worked. So what have they done? Let's switch directions and figure out yeah. what, what other direction to go. Yeah. And the other minefield that that brings sometimes is what they'll report that's been done to them often is or isn't the <laughs> truth. You know, I've, I, I, I've had runners telling me stuff's been done to them that's making me think I need to get these therapists struck off. And the cold light of day is there's probably a complete misinterpretation of what someone said or done to them. Mm-hmm. Um, they, you know, um, and the, the, the classic sort of, you know, the, the pendant type stuff. Yeah, they gave me um, some exercises and I've really done that and it's not worked. So you did these exercises this often for this. Oh, no, no, I did them like once a week for about three weeks. And their, their perception of failing rehab is really that they've not done the rehab at all. Um, <laughs> but it is, it's a tough one to, and again, you never want to call out them as liars or exaggerators. Likewise, it's hard sometimes to not call out previous therapists. I guess when, you, when you've practiced in the same area for long enough, you tend to know what some of those other therapists do and don't do around you. So, so you know if something, you know, I certainly now we've been home for two years. So if someone comes to see me and they've been to certain practices, I tend to know roughly from the history of every patient I've seen from that therapist that these are the type of things they do. Um, and, they, and that works both ways because sometimes I know these guys are really good therapists. So the probability is adherence from the runner more than the therapist. And in fact, what they're looking from for me is some, they want probably the easy thing. They've been told to do certain exercises, adjust their run in certain ways, and they're probably just looking for someone to stick some needles in them, to rub them, to tape them up, to do something. Um, but likewise, I know that there's other ones who come that have probably had a lot of passive work done to them and not really been looking at the, the stuff I would tend to look at. So, um, so yeah, you notice patterns and you, you can amend and adapt from there. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes, too, like... People tend to forget what works, I think. Um, like, I'll have some that there's like, it's still tight, I just need you to work on me. It's like, well, remember when we did this exercise and it calmed everything down? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. oh, it did? <laughs> well, yes. So I think a lot of times, too, it's 
this perception people get that they need this hands-on work when all reality is like they just need to be stronger in certain areas or, you know, yeah. whatever it may be. But um, I think. Go on, sorry. Go on. I was going to say, I just think there's this perception sometimes as like they need this hands-on treatment when in all reality, that's not necessarily the case. No, no. no. And, and, you know, I, I, I would bracket endurance athletes per se on this one, but off, uh, on one of the courses that I teach, one of my slides, which has a bit of a shock tactic intentionally, is that endurance athletes can be lazy. And my initial reaction to that from everyone, particularly if there's endurance athletes in, is, is no, no, we're not. We do all this training and we do all this stuff. And, and the point of the slide is basically that they're looking for an easy way out. Mm-hmm. They, they, they want little cheats and they want little easy ways to get through things, which I guess is human nature for, for a lot of things. But, you know, sometimes it's just a case of doing the work and doing the work consistently. That's the answer. And even though there might be something that helps in the short term, if you've had to have that short term help 10 times, then you probably need to be thinking about something else. And, and, and it's sometimes worth saying to them, you know, try to understand effectively what I'm saying to you is don't come and give me any more money. And, if, and, and what I'm trying to say is there's things you can do yourself to make a much bigger difference than you pay in money to come and see me. Um, because A, I'm probably not going to do the stuff you want me to anymore. But B, there's things you should, should be doing. But then flipping that around then, I, I, you know, it is a relationship. It's a deal that you make with these guys. And if I've got an athlete and they've come to me with a problem while they're going through like a 20-week cycle for a marathon, for example, and they're doing all the stuff I need them to, and they just say that once a month it feels really nice to have my calves rubbed, cool. Have your calves rubbed once a month. I have no issue with that whatsoever, but you've got to do the big stuff first. You've got to get the important stuff done first. Otherwise, you're just papering over the cracks and waiting for the cracks to get so big it's going to stop your running career. Yeah, and I think that's a great thing to point out is, like, we still do need to do self-care as athletes. I mean, I get my – I have a massage monthly. I work on myself as things get flared up, but I'm also able to – maintain my body better by having this deeper stability and um in throughout my joints and so it definitely is like we need to take care of ourselves we need to make sure things stay moving but that's not the end all be all of of no no. and again if you're doing all the good stuff then those the nice stuff so to speak just becomes a reward more than anything else you know if you trained hard and you and you part of you i certainly when i'm training for big events the soft tissue work and, and some passive soft tissue work to me almost becomes a training control as well. It, it helps me do it because I hate tapering. I hate recovering. I hate downtime. It, it's something I feel agitated with sometimes. But if I know that, okay, I'm not training today, but I'm having a massage, then actually it makes the whole dealing with recovery a lot easier. Mm-hmm. Hence will mean I have a better run the next time I go out running. I probably have less chance of injuring myself. Um, so yeah, you know, we're doing it for fun at the end of the day. None of us are, are elites or pros, unfortunately. So, um, so it's got to be some reward for, for the, the pleasure and hobbies that we're all doing. Yeah, definitely. Just kind of start closing it out a little bit. Uh, kind of just top, let's go like top three reminders for the runner themselves on just keeping them a resilient runner, decreasing the risk of injury. Yeah, top three. Number one would always be um, managing your training load, managing your training history and getting 
the structure of that program, including recovery, correct. Number two would always be, in my, in my attitude, get strong, stay strong. I just don't understand why someone wouldn't do it. I understand the reasons why people don't do it, but it just seems like a no-brainer to me that, you know, even, even, if it, even if you don't feel it's working, being strong, it's going to be good for life. And running is a, is a sport that requires so much force transmission that having, a, having a, a, a body that can tolerate more load has to be a benefit. Number three is rest and recovery is as important as anything else. We only adapt when we rest and recover. We, we, we expose our body and our systems to stress and it's the recovery that adapts. And, and you cannot, it's, a, it's something that's gonna catch up with you always. You, can, you can't out-train recovery. It's gonna always bite you at some point. And then fourth one to squeeze it in would just be that if don't stress so much about the things a lot of people think they need to stress about stretching the shoes, the clothing, which energy gel to have. They're far less important. If you can get the other, what I always call them, the big rocks, get the big rocks right first and then worry about the little rocks if it's something important to you. But, but the pyramid of that hierarchy sometimes is just a little bit upside down with some people. Definitely. That, that would be my big four. Cool. I'm so glad you threw the rest and recovery in there just because that is such an important element, sometimes more important than the actual training itself. So definitely a good one to throw in there. Awesome. Mike, if someone wants to ask you questions, find you, follow you, where can they do that at? So I'm the Endurance Physio on everything social media, Twitter, I'm at the Endurance PT, but everything else is the Endurance Physio. Um, my website is theendurancephysio.com. That's down right now because we're upgrading it so that we can have a lot of online courses that are going to be released hopefully late this year but probably early next year um that's pretty much where i am just the endurance physio across any platform awesome well thank you so much for your time today i really appreciate you spending this time with me to share your information with my listeners no thanks thanks for inviting me on and you're the one who had to get up early i've just been enjoying my day here in the uk so thanks for having me on and that concludes this episode of Highly Functional. I truly appreciate the time you spend to listen to myself and my colleagues share with you how to become highly functional individuals and how to be highly functional individuals. If you learned great information from this, I would love for you to share it with your friends and help them become highly functioning individuals as well. Until next time, go out and be highly functional.